This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Paraswap. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, coming to you from Scotland. You are listening and watching Untold Stories, where twice a week together, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, brilliant minds, brightest crowns in the box, to understand the intersection of crypto, Web3, macro, what's going on in the world right now. We have a war happening as we're recording, not too far from where I am. And we want to know how it affects us, how it affects our daily lives, our gas prices, inflation rates, prices of, of properties, of homes, uh, our wages, energy, shipping things, but travel, visiting our friends and family. Like it's just, it's just been a crazy past few weeks. And I really never thought that it would happen like this. And now we see uh, gold has been dumping over the last day or two. The Bitcoin has been, been pumping. Uh, we see the opposite was happening a few days ago. Stock markets are rebounding, tech stocks. Everything we thought we knew, including myself, we're finding to be wrong. And markets are becoming so much more hyper-efficient that they're bouncing and going crazy. To talk to us about this, uh, we were very fortunate to have one of my good friends, Luke Lango. Luke, thank you for, for so much for coming on Untold Stories today. Hey, it's great to be here, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Of course, Luke, you, prior to Investor Place, so, so right now you're a senior analyst at Investor Place Media. Uh, you run the wildly popular um, Ultimate Crypto and Crypto Investor Network. Uh, I help you and we work on, on a bunch of these projects together. But before that, you were founding manager at LNF Capital Management, a boutique investment fund based in San Diego that combined, you know, quantitative analysts with behavioral economics to identify long-term growth strategies at early stages. And you really have been uh, um, at the early stages of a lot of different waves and trends. And I just want to know, in your view, you know, the Federal Reserve was hawkish over the last, I don't know, like three months. We thought that the economy was running very hot. We thought that, um, we still think that interest rates needed to be, to be, uh, to, to rise in order for, for things to slow down a little bit. Um, we saw a huge outflow of, of tech stocks, the stock market. People were saying it was potentially in a, in a, in a correction. Um, Bitcoin blew, you know, blew off the top. It went from 69,000 down to where it was at 33,000. The whole crypto world lost like half a trillion, you know, like a half a trillion dollars in, 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 uh, in market cap. And then it went back up. And now we have this, this war in Ukraine, Russia invaded Ukraine. And that is affecting energy prices. My friends over in Germany are telling me that their gas prices are going up by 50%. What are you thinking about when you wake up in the morning and when you go to sleep? What are you following? Um, what is going on? Well, Charlie, there is a lot going on in the markets right now, the financial markets, geopolitics. Um, there is a lot happening. But at the end of the day, you asked when I go to sleep and wake up, what's the first thing, the last thing I think about and the first thing I think about when I, when I wake up, uh, and that's the Federal Reserve. That's the Fed. At the end of the day, a lot of these other developments, a lot of these other phenomena are noise compared to the Fed. The Fed, they're the masters of the financial universe. 
they're the ones that are going to decide which way risk assets go higher or lower, depending on their stance. And so all these other developments matter only to the extent that they impact the Fed's decisions, the Fed's thinking. The more the Fed thinks hawkish, the more the Fed acts hawkish, the more the Fed actually embarks on an aggressive monetary tightening policy path, the more risk assets will suffer in 2022. And the flip side is true too. Anything that gets the Fed to be more dovish, anything that gets the Fed to loosen or uh, tighten monetary policy more slowly is going to help risk assets. Um, And so that's at the end of the day, what it's all about. It's all about the Fed. You saw the gut reaction to the actual Russian invasion of Ukraine on Wednesday night. Stock market futures got crushed. The NASDAQ was down two and a half percent on the futures. Bitcoin just plummeted and absolutely plunged to 34. It was a wipeout. And then the very next day, the dip buyers arrived and we've been on a massive rally ever since. Why is that? Because people really digested and understood what is the real importance, the economic importance of that situation. It is its impact on the Fed. And the most likely outcome there is that it's going to make the Fed think twice about being hawkish. It might make them more dovish. And that is a positive for risk assets. So at the end of the day, we have to take all these things that are happening and understand how are they impacting the Fed's thinking. If hawkish, bearish. If dovish, bullish. And that's the big picture. Before this Ukrainian-Russian conflict, do you think markets were pricing in the ability for a a rate hike? Do you think the Federal Reserve almost talks about what they're going to do in order for markets to price them in before they do it. And now with what's what's going on with this this the largest ground war in Europe since I don't know since since Kosovo since since uh since Bosnia since World War II really like you think it'll slow them down. My brother-in-law was just asking me cuz he's buying a house and he wants to know if his interest rates are going to go up or they're going to stay the same. Yeah. Um I think that this action definitely will slow them down. I think that the Fed tries to telegraph well in advance what they're going to do. They know they're the masters of the financial universe. They know the power they control. So they try to telegraph to the markets via speeches, via meetings, via dot plots, what exactly they are going to do in 2022. Now, they're forecasting four or five rate hikes this year. The market thinks they're going to move more quickly. But before the Russia-Ukraine situation, there was like, according to the CME Fed Watch Group, uh, the futures market were pricing in about a 40 to 50% chance that the Fed was going to hike 50 basis points in March. Now, remember, normally rate hikes are 25 basis points in nature. So a 50 basis point hike means two rate hikes in one meeting, essentially. The markets were pricing in about a 40 to 50% chance of a 50 basis point lift in March. And the consensus was seven or eight rate hikes for 2022. In the aftermath of what's going on in Eastern Europe, the expectations for a 50 basis point hike have come down to, they fell below 10%. Now they're a bit above 10%, but they've been reduced dramatically. So now all of a sudden, everyone's thinking 25 bips in March, not 50 bips. 
As far as the full year 2022 is concerned, you've definitely seen a shifting in the futures market from seven or eight rate hikes to maybe five or six rate hikes. So it definitely, the market is definitely thinking that it's going to make the Fed more dovish. That's why you're seeing risk assets move higher. And I think the market's right there. I think that the yield curve is getting pretty flat. There is a war going on in Europe, the first major hot war since World War II, really, to your point. Um, you have already signs of a slowing U.S. economy. Pending home sales just came out this morning, Friday morning, February 25th for January. They've fallen for three straight months now. They're supposed to rise 1% in January. They're down 5.7%. Consumer confidence, consumer sentiment continue to come in at decade low levels. Um, so you're starting to see signs of a slowdown in the U.S. economy on top of this big war. The Fed has to start considering all these factors and say, you know what, maybe we should move a bit more slowly. That doesn't mean they're not going to hike. They're definitely going to hike. Your brother-in-law rates are definitely going up. But at the same time, what you have to understand is the Fed is so far behind the curve that even if they hike, that may not impact uh, yields all that much. The two-year Treasury yield is supposed to track the Fed. The Fed's at zero. The two-year Treasury yield's at 1.5%. That's 150 basis points spread. We've only been that blown out between the, the effective federal funds rate and the two-year yield two times before over the past 25 years. One of those times resolved with yields collapsing. The other time resolved with the Fed hiking very aggressively. So even if the Fed hikes aggressively here, you may not see yields rise dramatically because the market's ahead of the Fed here or the Fed's behind the market. Um, but I do think that what has happened in Europe is a net positive for risk assets only to the extent that it will now force the Fed to perhaps be more dovish in their monetary tightening here in 2022. Putting, putting Bitcoin and crypto aside for a second, how did we get here? Going back to like January 2020, right before COVID hit, the economy was in the place that it was in. And then COVID hit and we thought everything was going to get shut down. And all the Western countries did this immense stimulus and things got out of hand. And fast forward two years later, although like inflation is high and the cost of goods are higher, it doesn't feel like the economy is bad. It seems like unemployment is at the lowest rate it's ever been. Uh, uh, first time unemployment claims in Florida was at like less than 5,000 claims. I mean, like less than 5,000 claims last week. That's, that's so low. What's the disconnect? Like, shouldn't the economy be represented in the markets, price discovery? What, what is happening? Well, it's uh, the markets are a are forward looking and they're a discounting mechanism. So they try to look to the future, uh. not the past. And the economy, while very strong right now, there's a lot of fear that a lot of that strength is propped up on free money. Basically, we escaped a apocalyptic economic outcome in March 2020 and April 2020 because of enormous globs of monetary and fiscal stimulus. What if we didn't do that? Like, what happens if we didn't do stimulus? What would have happened? Would, would, would it be there mass poverty because people were out of work? Or would, if, if, like, what would have happened in your view if they didn't do stimulus those two times? 
Uh, in, in March 2020, uh, it, the situation would have been a lot worse. Uh, obviously not as bad as like an apocalyptic outcome because COVID-19 ended up being much more benign than what we thought uh, uh, on the onset. However, on the onset, a lot of people thought it was a, a world-ending type disease. And so in that situation, you you have to act. The Fed has to act. The U.S. government has to act. In the absence of that action, you would have had mass unemployment. You would have had a ton of consumer fear. You would have had a lot of foreclosures and bankruptcies. Uh, things could have been really ugly. And the scars of that crisis would be with us today. Whereas now, in the event that they did, they did act. We have scars, but they're not very noticeable and, and they're healing. Now, the flip side of that coin is now eventually we got to take away all this, this stimulus and the markets and the economy have become somewhat addicted to it. It's not too dissimilar from what happened in 2008, 2009, when the economy collapsed and it looked like the financial sector was on the brink of ending forever, um, when banks were declaring bankruptcy, when everything was going up, going under. That was a very scary time, and the government and the Fed came to the rescue. But coming to the rescue, instituting ZERP, zero interest rate policy, that became like a, like a crack pipe, like an addiction. You know, free yeah. money is addicting. And we were addicted to that throughout the 2010s. So whenever the Fed tried to take away that stimulus, the markets would throw a fit. Um, the economy, not so much, but the markets would throw a fit. And the markets always got what they wanted. The markets threw a fit in late 2018 when this very Fed was hiking rates. And then President, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump was saying, stop hiking rates. You're killing my economy. My economy is super strong. You're preventing it from being super strong. Uh, so you had Trump throwing a fit. You had the markets throwing a fit. And guess what? The Fed caved. The market got what it wanted. It got its free money back because the Fed started cutting rates in 2019. Oh, yeah. You could be seeing something very similar going on here. This could be, you're talking about why does the stock market not line up with the real economy right now? The stock market may be throwing a fit to get its way. The stock market is a spoiled little child and he or she tends to throw temper tantrums to get what they want and they tend to get what they want. So this could be the market throwing a temper tantrum saying, Fed, don't take away my free money or else you're going to be the bad guy and everybody's going to blame you because the stock market how that performs is reflected in consumer sentiment, and consumer attitudes. If your portfolio is getting hammered, if your stocks are down 20, 30%, you're not in a very jolly mood. You're not in a very trigger happy mood when it comes to spending. You're not opening up your wallet for, for nice dinners and, and fancy outings, you know? So yeah, there is, there's a connection therein. And that's why it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy where the economy could fall, the stock market throws a fit and doesn't get what it wants. But it normally gets what it wants, and I suspect the Fed will cave to the market, and the Fed will. They're still going to hike rates in 22, but I expect their path to be much more dovish than what the market is fearing these days. Bitcoin, for its life, has traded like in lockstep with stock markets. It has traded in complete like inverse yep. of stock markets. It kind of it's a honey badger. It, it does what it wants. The past like. I don't know, a month or so, we've seen like Canadian truckers getting donations from Bitcoin. We see like just today, $4 million was raised for Ukrainians uh, um, in Ukraine and uh, oh, through Bitcoin. And 
is this like a pivotal moment for Bitcoin? Do you think maybe that that message of Bitcoin being like a, a trading in lockstep with stock markets is finally starting to thaw? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the correlation between Bitcoin and the S&P 500 has strengthened significantly over the past few months. Uh, we suspect that is because the buyers, the buying pool of cryptos is now looking homogenous to the buyers of stocks, meaning smart money is getting in the crypto game, hedge funds are getting in the crypto game, big institutions are getting in the crypto game, big banks are getting in the crypto game. So you're starting to see the big money that moves markets, moves stock markets, is now getting into the crypto market. So unsurprisingly, the two markets are becoming closely correlated. And while that is a near-term negative, because unfortunately, this correlation has arisen at a time when the stock market has decided to throw one of its many tantrums, long-term, that is an enormous positive. Because zoom out and look at a 20-year, look at a 40-year, look at a 60-year chart of the S&P 500. And that is something, if you're a crypto bull, you want correlation to. You know, you don't want correlation to gold. Something that's really interesting is gold goes nowhere. You don't want Bitcoin to correlate to that. Stocks go higher. You want Bitcoin to correlate to that. So this correlation is definitely emerging. It's definitely getting stronger. And while it's creating near-term headwinds, it's actually a really long-term positive development that the correlation is becoming stronger because it means that Bitcoin, cryptos in general, are they already have a strong upward bias, but will continue to have that strong upward bias for the foreseeable future. Like it's so it's so cool that not cool. Let me take that back. It's it's cool if you're a geek, but it's sad and crazy when you're watching it happen. But at the same time, what's happening in the world in real time is affecting us in a you know in a day to day basis. For example, my friend who runs Flexport. Um, just he tweeted today that their product where you can ship very cheaply from China to Europe through the Trans-Siberian Railroad is no longer they can't offer that product anymore due to sanctions. So the cost for European startups to, to build products in China and sell them in Europe that used to be very cheap is changing. Uh, energy prices. I mean, you're seeing all of that and it's happening in real time. What else are you seeing? Uh, in terms of the the impact of, just, can you clarify that question a little bit for me? Yeah, it's like we see gas prices are going up. Yes. We see the ability, the shipping prices are going to go up. Right. Um, I'm trying to understand why Putin, I guess it's impossible to really understand, is like why he chose now and why this is all happening uh, during these times. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so I think there's there's two working theories out there that I view as the most plausible. And full disclosure, I don't know which it is. But one working theory that I think is entirely plausible is that Putin is losing control of Russia, that the population there is losing, is the support of Putin is waning. And this is a last-ditch last effort to showcase his strength and show that he's still this mighty ruler. Um, and I don't think it's working if, if that's what he's trying to do, because there are reports of Russians protesting. There are reports of the soldiers that they're sending in to fight don't really even want to be there. In fact, some were even forced and beaten to be there. 
So if this is indeed Putin trying to have this show of force, it's not working out very well at all. Um, so that's one working theory is that Putin is kind of like on his in the eighth or ninth inning of the ball game and is trying to elongate it to the 10th or the 11th, but it probably won't be elongated there. Um, and then the other working theory is that Putin is doing this because he feels he finally has leverage with respect to commodity prices and inflation. That he understands inflation is at multi-decade highs right now. He understands that Russia is a major exporter of oil. About 11% of global oil production comes out of Russia. He understands that Russia is a major exporter of wheat. About 10% of global wheat production comes out of Russia. He understands that Russia is a major exporter of precious metals, of steel, of iron. So they control a lot of supply. And he knows that sanctions against Russia, which is what the US and EU will levy, uh, will only exacerbate the current inflation situation. He also knows that exacerbating the current inflation situation will oh. not just hurt his economy, but also hurt the EU and the US. So he could be banking on the fact that this is as good a time as ever to invade Ukraine because the sanctions people are going to impose against him are not going to be that harsh because they can't be that harsh unless the Americans and the Europeans want to shoot themselves in the foot. Uh, which is not, which is something Putin believes we don't want to do for Ukraine. As bad as that may sound, I don't think the U.S. is going to shoot itself in the foot for Ukraine. Um, and Biden's first round of sanctions kind of underscore that. Um, the EU's first round of sanctions kind of underscore that. For a full-on Russian invasion of Ukraine, this first round of sanctions is a slap on the hand. It was nothing. You know, it, it was yeah, nothing. It, it, it's not a punch. It's not a, it's not a real show of force. There's a lot of talk about a show of force, but thus far we haven't seen it. And it could be because the Americans, the Europeans, the English don't want to shoot themselves in the foot. So that could also be, you know, the answer to why now, why is, why is old Vladdy doing this now? That, that could be it. He thinks his country has leverage because of the red hot inflation situation. The, he, he also, in the past few years, he amassed like, I forget the number. It's like $800 billion worth of foreign currency reserves, knowing that when he does this, sanctions would come and, and you know, he would potentially, they would be cut off. But the thing is, like, if he was unpopular before, and we've never seen the amount of protests that we see now happening within Russia, but if he was right. unpopular before, the ruble, like, basically cut in half. We're talking about inflation in the U.S., like 7%. Okay, big deal. But, like, the value of the ruble literally just cut in half compared to the, to the world, you know, currencies. How are people in Russia not, like, flipping a shit? They close the stock market there. Over what? Over just, like, a few thousand miles of, of, of extra land in the Donbass region? And then like, I just don't understand what the economic endgame is for Putin here. Or maybe for him, it's a zero-sum game because he's so old. Like you said, it's a last-ditch effort. And then he thinks that if the U.S. or Europe tries to do anything drastic, it'll take us down with him. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the market's just afraid of it's. I call it the madman risk. If we want to pretend to know what, what Putin is thinking, I think that we're fooling ourselves. I don't know if anybody really knows what he's thinking, what his endgame is. He's a madman. And getting in the head of a madman is a fool's errand. 
it's impossible to do. So what you have to do as investors is price in this madman risk that anything could happen over there and understand that anything happening over there probably will not have an enormous impact on domestic economies, on the crypto markets, so on and so forth. The one thing that I think is worrisome about the situation, uh, economically speaking, obviously there's a lot of worrisome things about the situation from a political standpoint, from a uh, uh, humanitarian standpoint specifically, it's a tragedy. But economically speaking, this thing could get really ugly if Russia's actions embolden China to go for Taiwan. Um, if that happens, we're talking about a completely different, very ugly situation because Taiwan exports something like 90% of the world's advanced semiconductor chips because of TSMC. Everything is built on semiconductor chips these days. Everything, your phone, computers, TVs, electric vehicles, everything is built on semiconductor chips. If that supply gets heavily sanctioned, if that supply comes off the market, if that supply gets disrupted, then you're talking about a much, much, much worse situation, economically speaking, than what you're seeing in, uh, in Russia and Ukraine. Now, I do not think that happens. It appears right now that China... Uh, China not, seems like they're angry at Russia. Yeah, it seems like. Yeah, exactly. So it appears that is definitely not. I'm not going to say it's definitely not going to happen, but it appears it is increasingly unlikely to happen. However, uh, that for me is the black swan risk here. Uh, it's not what's happening in Eastern Europe. I think that's a relatively um, economically contained situation. It's if that extends elsewhere globally then I think we could get some some real problems. But again, that's a black swan risk. I say less than 10% probability. Therefore, it's not a base case you should operate from as an investor in these markets. Sorry to interrupt your regularly scheduled programming, but I wanted to tell you guys that if you're using PancakeSwap, Uniswap, DYDX, SushiSwap, you're doing it wrong. You need to be using PowerSwap because PowerSwap is a user interface, a decentralized smart contract platform that sits on top of all of these. And when you go to Paraswap or untoldstories.link forward slash Paraswap, because they're refunding your gas, if you go there, then you'll be able to, on top of Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, and Polygon, look for the best prices for your tokens and swap and do everything in one predefined transaction on chain. Instead of having to do the approval to this token, to that token, to do all these different things, Paraswap does it all for you. It's decentralized. They just released their API version five that you can see everything. It's all open source. Very cool stuff. Untoldstories.link forward slash Paraswap. If you're using any of the other decentralized protocols, you're doing it wrong because you need to be using the routing, beautiful Paraswap routing system. And it's fully decentralized too. It's gorgeous. I'll talk to you guys soon. So I was... um kind of mentally preparing for not a bear market, but a slowdown in the stock market gains, maybe a, a, a little bit of like a, not a recession, but like a little bit of a, of a pullback there. Maybe the crypto yeah. markets, I was looking forward to maybe have a bear market. We we're going to go on vacation on a holiday. Um, how should one position their portfolio in bear markets, crypto portfolio or stock portfolios? Uh, are there, are there new trends that you can kind of make investments now for a five-year, you know, horizon is, is you think this would make, you think that this is going to really kick off the energy sector or maybe energy stocks is a good time to get in now 
because people are going to look like, hey, the reason Russia was able to do this was because they control 40% of, you know, Europe's natural gas supply. Right, right. Um, so the one thing to kind of just say here that's very important is that it's quite obvious, though nobody in practice does it. <laughs> well, Bear markets are the best time to be buying stocks and cryptos. And that's for two reasons. One, stocks and cryptos have a long-term, multi-year, multi-decade for stocks upward bias. They bounce back from bear markets. History shows that if you buy on the date the S&P 500 entered even correction territory, let alone a bear market, you're going to make money over the next 12 months. You're going to make a lot of money over the next three years, and you're going to make a whole lot of money over the next five years. So for patient investors, for long-term investors, the absolute best thing you could be doing is buying in a bear market. One, because of the long-term upward bias of stocks and also of cryptos, as we talked about, that correlation is getting very strong. And the second reason is that economic hardship, times of economic hardship are breeding grounds for innovation. They are when people really start to think about, okay, crap just hit the fan. That means we can't rely on the old way of doing things. We have to come up with new ways to do things. Out of the great financial crisis of 2008, that's when Square emerged. That's when Uber emerged. That's when a lot of really innovative, world-changing businesses emerged because people realized the hardships of 08 needed some changing. The economy needed some changing. So a bunch of entrepreneurs came out with great ideas and built multi-billion dollar businesses on those ideas. Tough times create very innovative thinking, and innovative thinking creates very promising new business ventures. So for that reason, also, buying in bear markets is, is a very good strategy. So how do you position your portfolio in bear markets and stocks and cryptos? What we try to do is we look for really washed out sectors, really washed out stocks with a lot of long-term potential that are just being discounted because of near-term issues that aren't going to impact the long-term trajectory of that business, of that project. And we hunger down in those. We buy them a little bit more on big down days. We buy them a little bit more on another big down day. We buy them a little bit more on another big down day. And we hunker down and create a really concentrated, low-cost basis and high-quality um, assets that have a lot of long-term potential. We're getting that opportunity in certain stocks. We're getting that opportunity in certain cryptos. And people who do that, investors who do that, are positioning themselves for really, really, really large gains uh, into 2025, 2027, and 2030, that if that is your time horizon, that is what you should be focusing on, then this is a great time to start concentrating into some of those really washed out, smaller cryptos, smaller stocks. There's a lot of opportunity in, in those areas right now. So you run um, multiple research services uh, for Investor Place. We work together on Ultimate Crypto and the Crypto Investor Network. We've put out a uh, 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 tons and tons of classes and education and research. And, and uh, you know, it's been really wonderful being on uh, um, these meetings with you and listening to the team. And you've developed this, like, you know, what you call a mag score for picking cryptos, for picking stocks. And you've applied kind of what you, you know, you, you've applied your, your uh, research from working on stocks into crypto, even though a lot of these cryptocurrencies, these protocols, these networks, these blockchains don't have like PE ratios. They don't have like a cost to acquire a customer, a user. They, they may not even have users. They may not even make money. How do you, how do you 
you know, kind of look at them or, or, or not pick them, but uh, digest is the right word. How do you digest which cryptocurrencies right. are even worth looking at? Right, right. Yeah. So it's a great question. There are metrics to look at, as, as you know, in the crypto space, a lot of tokenomics to look at uh, that can really give you some insight about what is a good project and what is a bad project or what looks like a good crypto, what looks like bad crypto. But I mean, beyond that, above all else, the thing we really focus on is not quantitative. There is a lot of quantitative stuff you look at. But the most important thing is or are the people behind a project that the crypto space is so nascent. It's so early. It's so young. It's in such an infant stage that their promises to be tremendous change over the next 10 years, tremendous change. The crypto markets in 2030 are going to look nothing like the crypto markets in 2022. That's a guarantee. That's an absolute guarantee. What are they going to look like in 2030? I mean, like, that's a, I don't even think about that. With the, I never even thought that I could ever think about what the crypto markets would exist two years from now. And that's a crazy thing, like a decade from now. Right. Well, even if, yeah, in 2024, they're going to look a lot differently. And to ask me what they're going to look like, I have an opinion what they're going to look like. But the fact of the matter is we don't know. We don't know because we're not there yet. There is a wide range of outcomes for this this industry. It, it's like saying you're you're going to a baseball game and you sit down for the top of the first inning, the bottom of the first inning, and your friend asks you, well, what's the score going to be in the ninth inning? Uh, I don't know. This, uh, yeah. you know, the Cubs have a better record than the Dodgers. Maybe the Cubs will be up six to four. Like you can take probabilistic guesses, but at the end of the day, you don't really know what the score is going to be at the top of the ninth. What I'm saying right now is we're in the bottom of the first inning, maybe the top of the second inning for cryptos. And so the amount of change that's going to happen over the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth innings, which are going to happen in the 2020s is going to be enormous. And what you need, just like in baseball, you want to bet on the team or pick the team that has a great pitcher, that has a, you know, a great first baseman, great outfielders, a great manager. You also want to pick because they're going to navigate through those nine innings to the highs and lows of the ball game. And at the end of the game, hopefully win the game. You want to pick cryptos that have great developers in this top of the second inning of the crypto ball game, so to speak, because it is great people who can pivot around market changes, who can adapt to changing conditions, who can execute on visions despite broader market turbulence that at the end of the day, will build products and services that lots of people use, which ends up creating a lot of economic value. So above all else for us, especially in the crypto markets where we're so early in the game, the team matters most. We have to have smart people running it. We have to have hopefully seasoned people running it. And we have to have innovative thinkers who dream big, who have a vision for what this is going to be and have the ability, the resources and the talent to execute on that vision. That for us is the most important, the single most important element when analyzing a crypto project um, in 2022. Bear markets bear fruit. Bull markets are for bullshit. My friend Brock <laughs> Pierce says that all the time. It's such a, it's such a good statement. I love it. I love it. I think that that is that is great. And it's something you just have to constantly remind yourself of because buy low, sell high. It's the first thing you learn as an investor. Yet nobody does it because buying low means stocks are falling or cryptos are falling. And when stocks or cryptos are falling, 
psychologically, it's human nature. People freak out, want to protect their wealth, and they sell too. So although the first thing you learn as, a, as an investor is to buy low and sell high, 99% of people don't do it. But if you can be part of the 1% that does do it, that's how you position yourself for uh, very large returns in any risk asset yeah. market, really. Um, but especially in stocks and cryptos where the gains can be disproportionately large on rebounds. Everyone's talking about financial censorship. You know, from the early days of Bitcoin, we're talked about censorship resistant money. And, cens- and censorship is the ability for like a centralized party to force your hand or prevent you from transacting or freezing or blocking similar to like what the U S is calling for, like with sanctions and this, this whole thing about sanctions, it's a relatively new thing. Sanctions were like, they, they were, they, they were start, they were really used during the Obama administration, um, a lot, but you know, it's relatively new. And so you have this, this, this concept of sanctions of economic sanctions of financial censorship and I could see why in this situation with Russia, it could potentially be a good thing. They're talking about taking Russia off of SWIFT, which is the mechanism where all global banks talk to each other in real time. But financial censorship could also be bad in the bad hands. So it's like, I struggle. I think about this all the time. I'm like, this thing that we're building, it could be used negatively in the hands of the wrong people, but it could also be used positively in the hands of right people. Do you think about that? Uh, yes. I mean, censorship is, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a balancing beam. Yeah. And, and yes. you know, fall or lean one too far or too much one way and, and you're falling off, lean too much the other way and you're falling off. And, um, it's, it's definitely a balancing act. The world has not figured out how to master that balancing act yet. Uh, nor do I think we will figure it out, uh, anytime soon. It's a really tough thing to do. But I, I am encouraged by some of the movements um, we're seeing throughout all industries, really. Um, I mean, Facebook is really getting backlash for censorship and people are starting to delete their Facebook accounts. I think that's that's a good thing. I think people taking back power is, is a good thing. What is going um, on with that, with, with the whole Facebook thing? And Meta, their stock market cut in half, basically, their market cap. Yeah, yeah. No, we're we're not really big fans of what's going on with with Meta. To be to be frank, I I, I think <laughs> they uh, it's really no fault of their own. They're just the biggest social media platform that everybody uses. And so when uh, information censorship by social media became a hot topic, a political hot topic, Facebook was the one that was thrust in the center of it. Did you ever hear Snapchat's name thrown around in those conversations? Did no. you ever hear Pinterest's name thrown around in those conversations? No, it was the name that kept coming up time and time and time again. And as a result of that, um, it is the company that is now taking all the flack for uh, basically information censorship on the internet. And people are quitting Facebook to go to other apps and they're not quitting Snapchat. They're not quitting Pinterest. They're not quitting the ones that were able to kind of hide under the umbrella of Facebook. But um, that's why we're, we're pretty not constructive on Facebook or meta or whatever the heck you want to call them these days. I think that that platform's heyday is, is behind it. It already had its day in the sun and it's time for some other platforms to, to emerge out of the ashes of Facebook. That would be cool to see. I wonder, I wonder how that all plays out. I wonder if Facebook, gets gobbled up, you know, gets acquired or maybe be the acquiry. 
you had you have Mark who's been running that company, running that ship, kind of like a king for so long. You know, it's just for for after a certain amount of time, some you know you need to step back because your vision gets clouded by your past kind of decisions, where you have to validate what you've been doing with your current and future decisions. You know what I mean? Like a self fulfilling prophecy. So I wonder how that plays out. You know, it's in Facebook. I'm going to call him Facebook because it just feels weird to say Meta. I, I mean, as somebody who's been following the company for a long time, it just feels weird to call the Meta. So Facebook's playbook is mergers and acquisitions. It's M&A. That's what they do. Um, the acquisition of Instagram basically saved the company from dying 10 years earlier. Uh, they also acquired WhatsApp, and that has elongated the the growth narrative of the company. So where does that take them today? A potential acquisition of Roblox? I think that's possible. I yeah. think that Facebook well look to make a splashy acquisition in the metaverse of a metaverse related company, whether that's a Roblox or a Matterport or somebody that's that's involved in the space. I think Facebook could definitely make a, a big move there, especially if Microsoft acquires, officially acquires Activision, right? Microsoft has announced the acquisition of Activision, but there are a lot of regulatory hurdles to to overcome there. I think it's unlikely for that acquisition to pass. However, if it does pass, if that acquisition does go through, I think that is almost a surefire sign that very soon after that, Facebook will make an acquisition because Facebook wants to win the metaverse. They don't just want to compete in the metaverse. And if Microsoft acquires Activision, they now have the content and the tool set and the experience to become the winner in the metaverse. Facebook doesn't like that. So Facebook will make a big splashy acquisition on the heels of Microsoft acquiring Activision if that acquisition does indeed go through. So that's the kind of way out of this very dark period for Facebook is a splashy acquisition of a successful metaverse company that could recharge the growth narrative like Instagram recharged the growth narrative. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're down, but at the same time, they have a huge war chest. And traditionally, when someone's down and they have a war chest of money, that maybe it's a good time to to buy. So uh, I've never been a fan of that stock, but I'm going to look into it. Um, I want to pivot for a second back to energy because the importance of energy independence cannot be overstated, especially now. I mean, we had this war with this war with russia started i i think like when when you had the fukushima reactor went off in japan like i think it was like 10 years ago or 6 years ago whatever it was and it was when germany said that by 2022 they're going to shut off all their nuclear reactors and by doing that they went almost hyper dependent on natural gas and other methods of worse methods of energy which is Makes no sense to me, by the way. It makes no sense where you have a, a place like Germany, which is like hyper liberal and hyper into like green. Their Green Party has like tons of seats, but meanwhile, they're like their dependence on shitty quality energy has just like gone up, sucking the tit. It makes no sense to me. Maybe you can explain it, but that's not what I want to ask you. Is is now a potential good time to invest in the energy sector because? Is this the watershed moment? Is this what people are going to say? You know what? Wars. And you had Kuwait and Iraq, which started over oil, Afghanistan, Iraq, all that stuff. But now it's like, it's so in front of us. Like, we know why Russia's going after Ukraine. It's so apparent. It's all, and, and, and then Germany, 
and and the rest of Europe like can't, has to have their tail between their legs. So in a year or two from now, was will this be looked at as like the watershed moment for like better energy, more efficient, you know, uh, environmental? Yeah, I I do believe this is a watershed moment for for the clean energy sector. Uh, energy independence is an enormous thing. Energy independence is becoming a necessity. It's what we need to do um, to prevent wars. To your point, many of the wars in the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years have been over uh, dirty energy sources, uh, non-renewable energy sources, oil, gas. Um, energy independence is a way to avoid that, to not get into those conflicts anymore. Um, I think that that is a huge impetus for solar. I think that is a huge impetus for wind. I think that is a huge impetus for hydrogen, especially in Europe. Europe is one of the leading um, geographies when it comes to hydrogen investment. And so I think that this becomes a very big impetus for adoption of those clean energy technologies. And beyond that, I think it's a huge impetus for energy storage technologies. I yeah. think that when you have a shift to renewable energies, that cannot be successful unless you have a way to store those energies because they are intermittent. They, uh, the sun doesn't always shine every day and the wind doesn't always blow every day. So when you shift to intermittent clean energy sources, you need a way to store those intermittent clean energy sources. And that is the energy storage solution, those energy storage batteries. So I think, yeah, this is a pretty good time to start looking at that sector. I think the folks trying to play the bounce in oil, trying to play the bounce in natural gas, it's very short-sighted. We can probably make money there. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's a bounce and then a drop-off. What you have to remember is that we've imposed sanctions on, on Russia before. Uh, 2014, when they invaded Crimea, the world of very brief spike in commodity prices, followed by a huge plunge in commodity prices over the following two or three years. I'm not saying the sanctions caused the plunge. What I am saying is that sanctions, which are supposed to be an inflationary driver, are not actually a big driver of commodity prices in the long run. Supply and demand are. And when you have a situation where perhaps a lot of countries and companies are going to now look to clean energy and maybe pivot away from gas, pivot away from oil, then you're looking at a situation where the near-term spike there may not last in, in those uh, old-school commodities and where you're going to actually see the bigger growth over a multi-year window is in the clean energy sector. Um, so I think that's where I would be looking right now. I think that's a really promising space. A lot of those stocks have been, have been washed out because they are high-growth names. They are long-duration names. Those are the names that have been centered at the epicenter of the recent stock market sell-off. So they're pretty washed out right now. They're pretty beaten up and they're pretty ripe for, for some buying and a big bounce back um, if we do get this clean energy shift as a result of the uh, Russia-Ukraine situation. Can you uh, tell us about the research service that you run with Investor Place? You have hundreds of thousands of readers uh, in, in all different sectors from crypto to, to stocks and energy, um, high growth, different type of things. Yeah, so we run multiple research services uh, for Investor Place. Uh, we have a team of very talented and smart individuals who are analyzing both stocks and cryptos all day, every day. Uh, our focuses are on the technology growth sectors of the stock market and the more growthy parts of the crypto market. Granted, 
most of the crypto market is growthy. Uh, so there's not much really yeah. vetting there. But um, we try to focus on projects that have a lot of long-term value. Our investment strategy across all of these services is very, very simple and straightforward. We invest in great companies or projects that are creating in the early stages of creating fantastic products and services uh, that lots and lots and lots of people or companies will use over the next few years. And that amid all that usage, that company or that project will develop enormous economic value, which will enable the stock price or the crypto to soar in value as well. So it's a pretty simple zoom out ignore all the noise, look at the big picture, understand the secular trends reshaping society, invest alongside those secular trends, invest in the winning businesses in those trends, and make a lot of money over the next five, seven, 10 years investing in the stock market, in the crypto markets. We think that's the simplest, yet the best way to invest. And um, it's really surprising to us how many, how few people do it, because everybody wants to make a lot of money right now, right now, right now, right now, right now. But if you can just have a little bit of patience and sit back and look at the big picture, you're going to make a lot more money than the person chasing every near-term dollar. Um, You are going to make a lot of money by just sitting back and letting great businesses, great projects develop great products and services that are going to generate a lot of economic value. That's the history of the market. That's what has happened. Those companies, those stocks been the biggest winners. History is not going to change. Um, It's going to continue being that way for the next 10 years so. That's the common theme across all of our uh, research services. Again, some of them are focused on stocks that meet that criteria. Some are focused on cryptos that meet that criteria. But at the end of the day, it's the same strategy. Invest for the long term. Keep the big picture in mind. Dude, thank you. I think in the last hour, we've very well explained the current economic situation and how it applies to our everyday wallets and our cryptos, our Web3, our metaverses and all these different things. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, and doing this for me and doing this for our listeners because they really love what you have to say. And 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 most people, myself included, we 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 can't. I get very deep in the rabbit hole, especially of crypto and in Bitcoin, and my head is in there. And it's nice to kind of pull out a little bit and um and do that. And I can't wait to see you again in a few weeks. Yeah, Charlie, it was awesome being here. You know, I, I miss you. You're over there in Scotland. You need to come yeah. back stateside so we can, we can hang out again. But uh, I hope you're having fun in Scotland. Markets are choppy, but choppy creates opportunity. And for smart people, this could be a really, really good opportunity. So let's hope we can make as many people smart investors as possible and turn what is today's weakness into tomorrow's profits. Someone, someone told me today, he said, comfort breeds weak people. And I've just been saying it in the back of my head all the time now. And it's like, if you think about all those times that you were in the most discomfort, everyone do that right now. Think about that time that you were just thrown into the most uncomfortable situation that you had to like use your body, your resources in order to come out of that. You became stronger. And so it's like, it's what you said is, it's a really beautiful thing. Thank you so much again.